myself on. I could be wrong. There it is. Yeah, that's good. It's great to see everybody. How are you doing? Great. Can we say thanks to Brandon and Charlie and Rachel and them just for leading us today? That was a wonderful thing. It is so good to be able to see you today. Um, as Brandon said a couple of times, my name's Chad. I'm one of the pastors here. Today, Misael is preaching at the Owasso campus, and Jonathan is on the Owasso campus as well. We thought that uh, spring break, the end of spring break, would be a good time for him to go there to see some of the things that take place on Sunday morning with our small groups and, and those kinds of things. And so I hope you'll be praying for them. Um, next week, I'll be back here uh, in this pulpit, and I'm excited about that as well. And Jonathan will be back uh, also. And so it's always a good thing. You know, there were a couple of things that Misael talked about in the announcements that maybe I thought we should just slow down a little bit and talk about as a congregation here. Uh, there, there's a couple of things that are coming that I think are really important that I want to make certain that you catch. And then maybe as you catch them, I would hope that you'd start praying about them, praying about the people that God will bring, and then praying about how can you be involved in what it is that God's doing through uh, those moments that we have together. So one of those things is the upper room experience. You may have heard Misael talk about that just briefly a moment ago. It's going to be on Good Friday, which is April the 2nd. It's going to be from 10 a.m. till about 9 p.m. all day long. And what it is, is it's an interactive opportunity to receive the Lord's Supper together in small groups. About 15 people max is how we'll do that. And that's not simply taking place on the Owasso campus. We'll have a location here that's doing that as well. So you go online, you sign up for your time, you sign up for your location. You get to do that with the people that you choose. Could be your family, could be your small group. But basically it's a recreation of the upper room. And you'll have an opportunity, it's fully immersive, you'll have an op opportunity to go in to hear the story of what took place in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and then have a, an, a chance to celebrate the Lord's Supper together uh, in, in that way. It'll be incredibly meaningful, and I hope that you'll sign up and you'll be a part of it. So that'll take place actually on both campuses all day on Good Friday, beginning at 10 a.m., and you can sign up online. I hope you'll do that. The other thing, and this is really more, more, more about us in this room, Easter Sunday is April the 4th. Can you believe Easter is just two weeks away? We're just two weeks away from Easter. Where It's just where's the time going, right? The year is almost done, and I, I love it. I love the fact that we just kind of keep moving forward. But on Easter Sunday, we get to do something on this campus that they don't get to do on the other campus. On Easter Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m., instead of us meeting in our small groups, we're going to have breakfast together. So I hope that you'll come hungry because it's going to be really good food. Misael's been telling me about the people he has lined up and the things he's gotten, and it's going to be good food. <laughs> and so uh, invite someone to come with you, and then come. We'll be down in Fellowship Hall from 9.30 till about 10.30, 10.45. And really the whole purpose of that is really for us to just spend some time together and enjoy, enjoy some unhurried time with one another around some good food. We'll get to do that at 9.30. And then at 11 o'clock, We'll have our Easter services right here in this room. And so I hope you'll come and be a part of it. And here's the request that I have. I hope that you'll be praying about what Easter looks like this year. I hope you'll be praying for the people that God will bring here. Because you know this, right? There are people who show up on Easter Sunday morning that never show up any other time, right? That's their one time to show up. And, and, and we love those people. I love them. And I hope, that, I hope and pray that on a morning like next, two weeks from now, I hope and pray that God will do something to capture their attention. And you know how he's going to do that? He's going to do that through you. And he's going to do that through me. And he's going to do that through the, 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 all of us together as we serve together, as we eat together, as we worship together. There's something intriguing about people who worship together. 
who sing God's praises and who surrender and submit to him. And so there's some things you could do to be a good host on Easter Sunday morning for all those folks that maybe we only see one time a year or maybe we only see them infrequently or this is the time that they get to show up. Here's just a couple of things, maybe three things that you could do to help capture their attention in a way that would draw them close to Jesus. Would you do these three things with me? They're really simple. Thing number one, I hope that between now and Easter Sunday morning that you're praying for them and for yourself. God, whoever you're bringing, I pray that they would have a resurrection encounter on Easter Sunday morning. God, whoever you're going to bring to the Tulsa campus, I pray that they would have a resurrection encounter. So begin praying right now that that would happen. That'd be thing number one that you could do. Thing number two that you could do is while you're here and while they're here, you could be an exceptional host. You could just be an exceptional, just exude, exude hospitality, right? Instead of waiting for someone to come up to you to introduce themselves, take the time to walk up and introduce yourself. Do your best to make everybody feel welcome. Start significant conversations. Ask more questions about them than they ask about you. See if you can just kind of get to know someone in a five-minute, two-minute, one-minute conversation and just be a great host. Be someone who smiles a lot, who laughs a lot, and someone who welcomes people in from wherever they may be. That'd be the second thing you you could do. And here's the third thing, and I don't know why I feel this way, but this might be the biggest ask of all um, whenever I ask you to do this, but one of the things we've done in this room is, and you may, it's subtle, so you may not have noticed, but we've increased the distances between the rows for COVID's sake, and we've reduced to some degree the number of chairs in the room for COVID's sake. We're going to try to make it a little, uh, we're going to try to get a few more seats in here, but I'm guessing that the room's going to be full on Easter Sunday morning, and one of the things you can do to be a good host is instead of sitting in your normal location, if you would sit close to the front and center on Easter Sunday morning, and and, and I know that sounds strange, but I always sit in this place. I've carved my name in the back of this chair, right? This is my seat. I've been here since Moby Dick was a minnow, right? Now, this is how long I've sat in this chair. Um, I get it, and that's okay, But one of the things that I know is true for people who aren't here that often is that that there's some ways we can help them feel comfortable being here. And one of those ways is not forcing them to walk in front of everybody to sit on a front row, right? And so if we could be the people, like a missionary, right? A missionary is somebody who changes their location for the sake of sharing the gospel. If on Easter Sunday morning you could just sit closer to the front and closer to the center so that as people come in who aren't used to our rhythms, they're not used to what we do on a regular basis, if they would just be able to come in and very comfortably find a seat so that there are no distractions from them having a resurrection encounter with Jesus Christ. Does that sound okay? Does that sound, is that something we can do together? I'm not sure if we're all awake yet. I think maybe I've put everybody to sleep with those requests. But man, I'm so glad that we get to do that. I'm excited about Easter. It's going to be a, it's going to be a great Sunday, and I'm looking forward to what's going to take place that day. Looking forward to breakfast. It's going to be good. Well, take your Bibles out and turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. I almost said 19, but that's wrong. It's Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to be today. And I love the story that we get to tell today. We've been in a series called Resurrection Encounters. And one of the things we've seen over and over again is that there are just some kinds of encounters that you can't wait to talk about. That you can't wait to tell. They're the kind of encounters that really change everything after it. And we've been seeing different personalities, different characters, and different groups of people from Scripture who had this incredible encounter with Christ, not while he was alive, but while he was alive again. He had lived his life, he had taught like he had taught, then he was very cruelly murdered 
on a cross at Calvary. Our sin put him on that cross, right? And, and he, he gave himself for, for your life and for mine. And then he did exactly what he said he would do. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And now there's this remarkably huge number of people who had this encounter with the risen Savior after he rose from the dead. And so we've been seeing these different resurrection encounters. And last week I asked you that question, uh, have you ever had an encounter that you can't wait to talk about? And I used the story of my uh, of getting engaged to Londa as one of those encounters that I just can't wait to talk about. I'm going to tell you about another encounter that's not about me and my wife. It's actually about an encounter that I haven't had yet, but it's a way you could pray for me. Uh, beginning tomorrow... I've been invited by one of our state senators, Senator J.J. Dossett. I've been invited to be the state senate chaplain for the week. So tomorrow morning, I'll get to go to Oklahoma City, and I'll spend my week with our state senate. I'll open the sessions with prayer, and then on Thursday morning, I'll get to, to deliver a devotional um, on the floor of our state senate for our senators. And so it's something I, I love talking about, and I'm excited that I get to do that. It's also something where I would say, please pray for me, because <laughs> what do you say to state senators? <laughs> um, and why would they even want to listen to someone like me? I don't know, but for whatever reason, God's put me in that spot for this week. And it's one of those encounters that I get to have, and I hope that you'll join me in praying for them and praying with me about them. But it's one of those encounters that, that after I'm there, it's a story that I'm going to end up getting to tell again, right? It's, it's one of those moments that I, I can't wait to talk about. Well, the resurrection for every believer, the resurrection for every believer should be that for me and you, right? And here's the reason why. Tim Keller, I used this quote last week, but it's such a great quote. Tim Keller said it like this. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And so I don't know what you think about church. I don't know what you think about spirituality or the Bible. I don't even know what you think about Jesus. But that quote is 100% absolutely true. If Jesus rose from the dead, you should probably pay attention, right? And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, well, like Paul said, we as Christians are the most to be pitied because we're following after someone who's just a liar, who's just not, who's not real. But here's the thing I know for sure. I know for sure that the resurrection is true. I know, that, I know for sure that the resurrection is true, partly because we have these recorded instances of all these eyewitness encounters of Jesus. There were hundreds of people who saw Jesus, who walked with Jesus, and who spoke with Jesus after his resurrection. And then after he ascended into heaven, those same people, many of them were martyred for their faith. They didn't just see Jesus and think, wow, isn't that neat? They didn't just follow Jesus because they thought, wow, this is just going to make me healthy, wealthy, and wise. They didn't follow him for that reason. They followed him not because of what they would get out of it, but because they simply could not deny the truth that he said he would rise from the dead, and he did. And when someone comes back from the dead, I'm going to pay attention to what that dude says, right? That's how that works. And they, they lived and they, and they died for the sake of their faith because they knew it was true. They were martyred for their faith. And then those martyrs carried that message to other people. And that message spread around the world and it spread through time. And so here I am today. 
I am the beneficiary of this message of these people who had this resurrection encounter with Jesus Christ. And so are you if you're a follower of Christ. And if you're not a follower of Christ, then I hope you'll listen closely today. Because the story I'm going to tell just might be your story, right? It just might be your story. You see, because I've had an encounter with the resurrected Christ, and while I've not seen him face to face, I have experienced the goodness and the graciousness of his spirit in my life, and I have walked with him, and I have seen him walk side by side with me. Actually, it's better than that. I've seen him walk ahead of me and prepare the way for me so that I could simply follow in his footsteps. And in those moments when I wasn't strong enough to follow in his footsteps, I've seen him carry me everywhere I need to go. Because you know what? When the resurrection is true, everything else changes, right? And so today from Acts chapter 9, we get to see the story of a man whose original name was Saul. Now we know him as Paul, and Paul we think of as this incredible missionary. But before Paul was this incredible missionary, Paul's name was Saul. And Saul, from our point of view, would have been considered a violent terrorist. He would have been considered a violent, cruel Osama bin Laden terrorist, right? Let's see why. We're going to, today, normally we have the habit of standing in the honor of reading God's word, but we're going to be back and forth throughout the passage, and it's a long passage of scripture. So rather than standing to honor God's word, let's do this. Let's listen to God's word and then do what it says and honor it that way today. Is that okay? Could we do that? That'd be good. Let's look at Acts chapter 9. Listen to verses 1 and 2. Listen to the life of Saul. This is the guy we think of. Paul now wrote most of the New Testament. We think of him as the prince of preachers, the best of missionaries, but listen where he started. Maybe this is your, is your story. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way... Now, the way is what they called Christianity before the word Christian became a thing. We were followers of the way. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the the early disciples were known as followers of the way instead of Christians. It wasn't until churches were established at the church of Antioch where kind of as a slight people were called Christians. But that's that's another story for another day and, and well further down in time. This is long before that time. And so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here's this man who believes in his faith so strongly that with malice aforethought, he would go to the religious leaders of his time and he would say, I think you need to give me the authority, both the religious authority and the governmental authority. You should give me the authority to go seek out, find, and hunt down Christians wherever they are found. Let me find and hunt down everyone who is a follower of the way. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take them, I'm going to bind them. And after I bind them, I'm going to interrogate them. What do you think of when you think of interrogation When you're bound. Torture. I don't know that he was torturing, but at least it says he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, right? He was going to interrogate them to find out who else was a follower 
of the way. And he was going to bring them, he was going to drag them from Damascus all the way back to Jerusalem, not so that they could have a friendly meal and enjoy the Lord's Supper together, right? He was going to drag them from Damascus all the way back to Jerusalem so they could be put on trial, and the end of that trial would be capital punishment. The end of that trial would be either they would deny their faith or they'd be put to death. This was his intent, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went and asked to be able to do this. And here's the thing I see in that passage of Scripture. If I'm going to make it personal, if I'm going to make it relate to us, your relationship with God is broken. Now, this is a truth that none of us can deny. All of us know this. You may not believe in God, but even in that lack of belief, your relationship with God is broken. Here's the thing about Paul that I find fascinating. Paul, Saul, was a man of faith, right? He was a Jewish man. He was a Hebrew man. He was a Pharisee. He loved his Judaism. He loved his faith. And in that faith, he was very, very sincere. You know, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that I haven't met anybody who's not a person of faith. Your faith may be in God. Your faith may be in another religion. Your faith may be in science. Your faith may be in humanism. Your faith may be in yourself. You may be like Ferris Bueller. I don't believe in isms. I only believe in me. You know, you may be uh, one of those guys that's, that's like that. But, but everybody has faith in something. And so many people have a very sincere faith. I have this sincere faith that makes me believe that, that if we pass the right laws, if we say the right things, that there will be an end to racism. I have a, a, a sincere belief that through our government, we can legislate poverty out of this world. I have this very sincere belief that if we just do this, then that will happen, right? You can fill in the blanks with all of your favorite things, right? In, in, in any direction. So that's not really a political statement or an economic statement. In any direction, all of us have faith in someone or something, and I would be willing to bet, because I know most of the people in the room, when I look at you, I think you're sincere, right? You have this very sincere faith in whatever it is that you have faith in. But have you ever wondered, have you ever thought that it's just possible that you could be sincerely wrong? You could be. You could be sincerely wrong. Paul was one of those guys. He had a very sincere faith. <laughs> he was just sincerely wrong. And it caused him to do atrocious things. It led him down a path that didn't just break him. It broke his relationship with God. And it broke the people that he was attacking, that he was fighting against. And so it, just a moment of honesty. You don't need to answer this out loud. But just a moment of honesty. If you have a sincere faith and you're sincerely wrong, would you really want to know about it? Would you really want someone to tell you about it? And if someone could kindly and lovingly look at you and say, you're sincere, but you're sincerely wrong, would you want to know about it? And, and once you learned that you were sincerely wrong and you could see it, then would you change? Would you do anything about it? You see, that's the challenge of Paul's life. That's the challenge of Saul's life. Saul was sincerely wrong in his faith. And, and some of us, we're not sincerely wrong in our faith. We, some of us, we have this misguided sincerity. Some of us are just genuinely enemies of God. We don't want to have anything 
to do with him. Some of us, our relationship with God is broken because we just feel like, well, we look at our lives and we listen to what everybody else has said and we just assume we're a big disappointment to God. God would never talk to me. God would never have anything to do with me. My relationship with him is broken and it's going to stay broken because I'm just such a big disappointment to him. And so there's, there's a lot of reasons why we have this broken relationship with God. Some of you in the room today have this broken relationship with God, not because of a sincere faith you have somewhere else, not because you've made yourself an enemy, not because you feel like you're a disappointment, but you really just don't care. You're just apathetic. You're like the Roman soldiers in this story. You're just living your life, doing your thing, and you know you just want people to leave you alone, and you just want God to leave you alone too. Just, just leave me alone. I don't know if God's real or not, but if he is, you can just leave me alone like everybody else. I want to do my thing. Well, if that's the case, your faith is misplaced. Your faith is in you. And just like Paul, you're sincere, but you're sincerely wrong. And so struggle with that question just a minute. If you, if you, found, out, if you found out you were wrong, would, would you want to know it? And if you found out about it, would you, would you want to do anything about it? Because I can tell you with certainty, just like Paul, your relationship is broken. And sometimes with the best of intentions, we commit the worst of actions. With the best of intentions, we make the worst of choices. And it all happens. The root of every last bit of it is that our relationship with God is broken. We have a faith that's a sincere faith, but without it being faith in God, faith in Christ, our faith is misguided and it's sincerely wrong. That's the first part of Saul's story, but here's the thing about God. God's desire is for you. Not to condemn you, but to save you. Not to crush you, but to bring you into a place of righteousness. Not to destroy you, but to make you his own. To adopt you into his family. To look at you and say, you're not a disappointment to me. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. To help you say, yeah, I'd see that you have a sincere faith. Let me show you what you really should have faith in. Because this is the faith that never fails. All these other things, humanity is going to fail you. Science is going to fail you. Economics is going to fail you. Politics is going to fail you. How many times have we seen that happen over and over and over again? It's all other people. They're going to fail you. How many times have we seen that? But God looks to each one of us and says, but I don't want you to remain in that condition. I want you to have faith. Let me show you what you can do with it. Put your faith in me. And I'll show you the way, the truth, and the life. Acts chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. Let's read that next section. This is what Saul this is what happens to Saul. And this is how Jesus has this encounter with Saul. Verses 3 and 4. Now, as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus. This is that broken road that he was on. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? What an amazing question. Here Saul is on the way to persecute Christians and Jesus shows up. He shows up right where Paul is, right where Saul is. And he says, I want you to see something, Paul. Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see this, Paul. You can't see how broken you are. You just can't see it. So maybe that whole first section of my talk here, the whole time I was saying to you, your faith is sincerely wrong. Maybe your faith is sincerely wrong. Maybe it's sincerely misplaced. Maybe it's sincerely misguided. You're sitting there shaking your head going, I just, I don't see it. I just don't think that's true. Well, there's a reason why. And it's because without Jesus shining his light into your life, without Jesus shining his light into my life, you just can't see how broken that you are. And it's part of the beauty of who Jesus is. 
Jesus doesn't ask you to come anywhere. He doesn't ask you to go anywhere to, to have a relationship with him. He meets you right where you are. Each one of you came into this place today. I'm not sure why. Some of you did it out of habit. Some of it because somebody brought you or someone invited you. I'm so thankful that you're here. But I can tell you with certainty beyond the practical why of, well, maybe I'm here because it's what I always do or maybe I'm here because I was invited or maybe I'm here because I didn't have anything better to do and I'm just trying to get away from someone or something else. Whatever your, re whatever your reason for being here is, I can assure you that God has a much better, much bigger reason for it. And it's because today, like Paul, like Saul, he wants you to see the brokenness in your own life. He wants you to see the weakness of your faith if it's not a faith that's in him and in him alone. Jesus meets you where you are, and it's such a beautiful thing. You know, Paul had this incredible backstory, and Paul liked to tell his story over and over again. Paul told the story of his faith and how he came to Christ over and over again. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, you don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen, but let me just tell you part of Paul's story. This is Paul telling part of his story. This is what he thought about himself, okay? Maybe you think, I don't need Jesus, I'm not broken. Chad, you have no idea what you're talking about. Maybe I don't have any idea what I'm talking about, but Saul could see it. Look at this. Philippians 3, 4 through 6. Paul says of himself, here's the reason why I think I'm something. Here's the reason why as a Pharisee I thought I was something. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews as to the law. I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to the righteousness which comes from the law, I was blameless. Here's Paul essentially saying, my life doesn't stink. <laughs> Mine is great. This is the Saul that met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's leading this life believing he has everything all together. Remember I said the Pharisees were the ones, this is what I said last week, the Pharisees were the, were the religious sect that argued that the resurrection was true. They believed the resurrection would happen for all of us, that all of us would get to be resurrected at some point. They believed that. Yet when Jesus said, I'll be resurrected, and then when Jesus showed up as the resurrected ones, they were the first ones to say, well, anybody but him. It couldn't possibly be him. And Paul stood in his self-righteousness to say, I know I'm good. I'm not just good, I'm better than everyone else. And because of that prideful attitude, because of that spirit, because of his history, because of his pedigree, he grew up in the right family, he had all the right stuff, he was the best student, he had the best teachers, he could speak multiple languages, he's this brilliant guy, and for all of these reasons, he would say, I'm the best of the best, I'm not broken. So maybe when I say to you today, you can't see how broken you are. Maybe you're sitting there going, but I'm not. And you're wrong. We all are. We've all been broken by our sin. Our relationship with God has all, it's broken every one of us. And because our relationship with God is broken, it breaks our relationship with people. Any hurt you've ever experienced that you've caused someone else began as a break between your relationship with God and became a break between your relationship with someone else. Any hurt that you've experienced because someone else has hurt you, it began because their relationship with God is broken, and because of that, they've broken their relationship in some way 
with you. You know it to be true because you've experienced the hurt. No matter how much like Paul, you want to stand in a place of self-righteousness and say, no, 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 I know everything and I've got everything and I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and I'm fast enough and I don't need anyone but me. That's what Paul says. And then, in the middle of believing all of that about himself, I'm right, you're wrong. I know you don't. Christians are they're creating this new sect that's just wrong. It's like a cult and I've got to stop it because they're coming against my Jewish faith and I've got to stop it. They're coming against my Judaism. I've got to stop it. And so breathing murder and threats, he went to Damascus and in the middle of all that, Jesus met him right where he was to help him see just how broken that he was. And in the middle of that, Jesus creates this crisis of belief for Paul. He creates this crisis of belief. And it's just amazing to see what happens when someone faces a crisis of belief. For Paul, the result was, well, he became physically blind. I actually believe that his physical blindness was a reflection of the spiritual blindness that he was already walking in. He was already walking spiritually blind. And I think Jesus, in the light, showed him something that he didn't know what to do with. But Jesus, I'm not broken. But Jesus, I do know. But Jesus, I have studied. But Jesus, I am, I am, I am. And he filled in all the blanks and was just completely spiritually blind. And God pulled out of that spiritual blindness a physical blindness. Made it so that he couldn't see. You know, the end of the story, I'm going to fast forward just a little bit to the end of the story. Philippians 3, 7, which is the last part of that passage we just read. Paul comes to the conclusion after his crisis of belief. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, my life was all of this. I was on my way to becoming the high priest. I was on my way to becoming the most educated, the most respected, the most successful Pharisee of all time. I was headed, I was on that path. I was making a name for myself. I was making, but all of those things, out of this crisis of belief, Paul went, but all of those things I've counted loss because I found someone better. I wonder what it would take for you to say that. I wonder what it would take for you to do that. Because Jesus doesn't want to show your brokenness just to prove how bad you are. He doesn't want to show you your brokenness just to make you feel small. The reason he brings this crisis of belief is because we've been sincerely wrong. Because we've believed something that's simply not true. And, and when that falsehood is, is lit up in the brightness and the shine of truth, then it does create this crisis within us. And Jesus creates that crisis in you, not to destroy you, but to heal you. Not to demolish you, but to save you. Not to cause you to feel incomplete and insignificant, but to complete you and to make you whole and to adopt you into his family. And on the road to Damascus, here's Paul. And it's funny because even in the crisis of his belief, when Jesus spoke up, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
all of those persecuted saints, all those ones that Saul had, 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 had beaten, that he had, he had put into prison, all the ones that he had abused, when Stephen, the deacon, the very first deacon, was martyred, Saul was the one who stood by holding everybody's coats while, while Stephen was stoned to death. He was excited about that murder. He thought that was the right thing to do. And, and here Jesus is on the road to Damascus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? All of those persecuted people. Jesus makes it crystal clear. You hurt all those people. But hurting them wasn't about them. Hurting them was about me, Jesus says. You're persecuting me. And Paul's response is such an interesting one. He says, who, who is this, Lord? He asks the question, who, who are you, Lord? I'm not sure that that's just a sir. You know, sometimes I say sir or ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, yes, ma'am. Uh, no, sir. No, ma'am. Somebody will say, uh, would you like fries with that? I'll say, yes, sir. <laughs> um, it's just part of my vocabulary. I don't think this was just part of Paul's vocabulary. He was too prideful for that, right? Who are you, Lord? Somewhere in his heart, somewhere in his mind, somewhere in his emotions and in his will, when he heard this voice from the light, he recognized, he didn't fully understand it, but he recognized there's a truth there that he cannot escape. And I wonder today, is that a truth that you can't escape? You know your life is broken. You've heard the story of Jesus before. I wonder if it's a truth that you can't escape. Let's keep going. Verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 7. It says, this is what happened to the men who were traveling with him. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me that when Christ comes for you, it's personal. When Christ comes for you, it's personal. Some of you haven't trusted in, in, in Christ, and, and this right now is this moment where you're, maybe you're coming into this crisis of belief. Well, maybe if what I believe isn't true, maybe this is true, what should I do with that? But some of you have been believers for a really long time. And I've heard you say, well, my testimony is just not that good. <laughs> Um, it's just not that good. What do, you, what do you mean by that? It's just not that good. My story is just not that, it's just not that special. It's just not that big. Well, what do you mean by that? I have friends whose stories are, uh, they sound amazing to me. They were drug addicts and they were homeless and they were, they were abused and they were abusers and they spent time in prison. And I, I have friends who did all of that and then they met Jesus and everything about their life changed. And now they're productive members of society. And God has healed them of all the abuse and healed and, and forgiven them of, of, of all the abuses they've committed and overcome the addictions that are in their life. And they've overcome their homelessness or they've overcome these things. And they've done all of that because of the grace of God filled through them. And, and somebody who's been a believer for a long time, maybe since you were a child, you might shake your head and go, wow, my, my testimony is not nearly as good as that one. I shouldn't talk about my story because, man, my story's not, it's not good like that. But you know what? Your story is your story. And it's worth sharing. Paul shared his story over and over again. Well, mine's not like Paul. I didn't kill anybody. Well, neither did I. But you know what happened to me? I was nine years old when I came to this crisis of belief. I'd grown up in church with great parents and great grandparents who taught me from the time I was young that Jesus was the answer. I just never thought to ask the question, what is he the answer to? It's just a part of my life. I sometimes feel like I was born on a pew because I was born on a Saturday. I think I was in church on Sunday. It was just kind of my life. I just grew up that way. And what a privilege it was to grow up that way, to grow up in a loving home. And by the time I was nine, 
I wasn't brilliant, <laughs> um, and I, I wasn't exceptionally godly. You know, I was a mama's boy, but I just came to the space where I thought, God, I, don't, I keep hearing you're the answer, but what are the answer to? And I, I suddenly became aware of how broken, even as a nine-year-old, my life was. I wasn't a murderer like Paul. I wasn't an addict. I hadn't had time to become an addict yet, right? All of my worst sins I've committed since I came to faith in Christ. Maybe that's true for you too. But here's what Christ did for me when I was nine. With the faith of a nine-year-old, I realized that my life is broken because of my sin. And I came to this place where I understood that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And out of that, out of that, I surrendered my life to him. And I believe that God saved me out of addiction. Not because I was ever an addict, but because he helped me avoid addiction in the first place. I believe that God saved me out of abuse. How? Well, not because I was abused, but because somehow he led me down a path where my path never, my path never crossed with an abuser. And if it did, there were people that God placed in my life who helped protect me from those abusive relationships. And I have this incredible marriage and these incredible kids. And my wife is faithful and my kids are growing in godliness and in maturity. And it's so much fun to see. And there's so many things that I believe that God has protected me from. And so my story of faith isn't about my faithfulness to God. My story of faith is my story. It's not like your story, but my story of faith is about God's faithfulness to me. Not simply in my eternal salvation, but in the daily walk of my life. Every day I can look up and I can see one more time and one more way that God has been faithful to me. And Paul, in this crisis of belief, began to look back over his life and shake his head and go, there's some things in my life that just don't make sense. And there's some ways I've believed about God that just don't have the ring of truth. And in the light of who Jesus was, the blindness that was in his heart became physical. He went blind, and he didn't know what to do. When Christ comes for you, it's personal. And here's the thing. You may be sitting here. You may be just like the Roman soldiers, the soldiers that were with him. It says that they, uh, they heard the voice, but they saw no one. You may hear my voice today, but still not see the light, right? Man, what a tragedy that would be. For you to think, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Maybe... I don't, but I can tell you that Jesus does. And the light you need to see is not the light that comes from me. The light you need to see is the light that would come from him. And my hope is through me and through the people who are seated around you and into that life. And maybe it just serves to make you even more blind because it's just revealing in you the blindness that you already have because of that crisis of belief. Let's take a look at two more things real quick. Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 17 say this, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hand on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. 
how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's an amazing story. If you were invited to go see to go talk to, to go witness to someone who had the reputation of arresting, beating, and killing Christians, how quick would you be to get up and go do that? <laughs> Ananias, that's exactly what he was asked to do. Saul had this reputation, and in his reputation, Ananias went, God, I'm not sure you know what you're talking about. And God said, yeah, I do. Trust me. And he went. And you know what happened? Ananias' faithfulness helped heal a broken person. I think that can be true for everyone seated in this room who is a follower of Christ. Don't undervalue your testimony. Don't undervalue your story. Whether you have the story of brokenness that's dramatic or whether you have the story of brokenness that's mundane, whichever story it is, don't undervalue your story because your faithfulness, your faithfulness, it helps heal broken people. Your faithfulness. It's exactly what happened with Ananias. I think Paul would have been saved whether Ananias showed up or not. But you know what? Ananias received this incredible blessing. He got to be the man that was a conduit of the grace of God for the one man who would write one third of the New Testament. He got to be the man we still, he got to be the man we still talk about because he was the one to share the faith with someone who was so cruel and so unkind, and so lost. It leads me to a formula that I think we ought to catch, and it's a formula that you've probably heard before because it comes from Walker Moore. Walker Moore says a willing witness plus a seeking soul equals a divine encounter, right? A willing witness, that'd be an Ananias. He was faithful to do what God said even when it was dangerous. He didn't undervalue his story. He just told the story that God told him to tell. Ananias was faithful. He was the willing witness, and he shows up in the home of Paul, Crisis of belief, a seeking soul. And it became this resurrection encounter where Paul's eyes were open and his life was transformed by the grace of God. And do you understand, church, that on Easter Sunday morning, doing something as simple as what I asked at the very beginning, sitting close to the front, being um, actively, I would say, hospitably aggressive, right? Um, in, in your getting to know people, that could be you being Ananias for someone on a Sunday morning in a place that's so safe and that's so easy. That could be a willing witness and a seeking soul creating this resurrection, this divine encounter. It could happen on a ball field. It could happen at your work. It could happen in your school. It could happen in your home around a circle where you just invite some people to come eat. And you say to them, hey, let me tell you my story. It's not exciting like these other people's. Mine's pretty boring, but in the boringness, let me tell you how incredible God's been to me. Or it could be the other thing. Mine's pretty, it's not boring. Mine's pretty exciting. But in the excitement, let me tell you how good God has been to me. A willing witness plus a seeking soul equals a divine encounter. And here's the last thing I think we've got to see. I hope, I hope, church, that this week, next week, that you'll be praying about Easter Sunday morning and that we will find a way for us to, just capture the attention of the people God brings here 
with the good news of the gospel. Here's the last thing I want us to see. Verse 18 and 19 of Acts chapter 9. This is what happened to Paul, to Saul. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. You know, the last idea that we see here is that new life begins when you surrender. New life for you and for me, it begins when you surrender. You know, we could argue about when did Paul actually become a Christian? Did he become a Christian when he saw the light on the road to Damascus? In Galatians, he talks about his faith in terms of how God had picked him before while he was still in his mother's womb, how God chose him for certain things. And so in God's eyes, certainly he was, he was just Paul, the one I've picked. But from, from Saul's eyes, I've got to wonder if, if he didn't think of that moment of salvation, not when he saw Jesus on the road, but I wonder if new life for him began when he surrendered and the scales came off and now he could see physically and spiritually truth like he'd never seen it before. We see the reality that as soon as he could see clearly, he began to act rightly. As soon as he could see clearly, he was baptized. He followed Jesus in the very first step of obedience that Jesus asks of us all who follow him, that we would be baptized. So as soon as he could see clearly, he began to act rightly. And then as he acted rightly, he received strength for the journey. And so it just leads to that very natural question for you and for me. Are you ready to surrender? Have you had that crisis of belief? Are you sincere in your faith, but sincerely wrong? You don't have to be. If you surrender today, just like Paul, you'll begin to see clearly so that you can act rightly and receive strength for the journey.